the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, partially darned socks discovered to be the actual shape of the cosmos, which leaves our galactic cluster imperiled by the knitting needle of God dipping down to take a stitch. Astronomers aren't sure when, but most believe it'll be before the holidays. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have part two of our great interview with David Weber this time on the podcast. David is talking about Uncompromising Honor, his new addition to the Honor Harrington series and a climactic book in the storyline. David talks all things honor and especially all things uncompromising honor. So that's coming up. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. But now here's the news. Hey, let me tell you about J.R.E. Ark. He was just a man with no name, except that was his name, who walked into a town that needed a hero. He became that hero, and when he was gone, the streets were wiped clean of the scum that had been bleeding the people dry. His only request from the populace? $15. Did they give it to him? Of course not. So he burned the town down. Wait, 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 that isn't what an e-arc is. No, 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 an e-arc is an electronic advanced reading copy. It's an e-book version of a galley proof. Here at Bain, we know that you often clamor for what's coming sooner than we quite have it out of the oven, of proofreading, that is. And we are very happy to give you a bite of the whole cake, in this case, about four months early. At Bain eBooks is where you can get these e-arcs, and the October e-arcs include... The Storm by David Drake. This is the sequel to Dave's really delightful book, The Spark, a champion at the heart of chaos. The universe has shattered into chaos and monsters. John the Leader is dedicating his life to reuniting the scattered hamlets into a commonwealth where all humans can live in peace. To do this, John needs champions to face the powers of chaos. Lord Pal of Buin is one of those champions. Now Guthrum, the man who transformed Pal from an ignorant rube into the bulwark of the Commonwealth has disappeared. Pal must locate his friend and mentor, and then he must battle an entity which may be at the core of the splintered universe itself. Also now out in EARC is Arcad's World by James L. Cambius. Cross a mad planet for treasure and freedom. Young Arcad is the only human on a distant world. His struggle to survive on the lawless streets of an alien city is disrupted by the arrival of three humans, an eccentric historian named Jacob, a superhuman cyborg girl called Baichi, and a mysterious ex-spy known as Ree. They seek a priceless treasure which might free Earth from alien domination. Arcad risks everything to join them on an incredible quest halfway across the planet, but the deadliest danger comes from treachery and betrayal within the group as dark secrets and hidden loyalties come to light. And finally, in E-Arc now at Bainey Books is the next entry in Susan R. Matthews' Under Jurisdiction series. This one's called Crimes Against Humanity. Gone beyond justice. Gone beyond space. Get there and you may find freedom from torture and genocide under jurisdiction. 
Yet go there at your own risk. The rule of law has only a tenuous hold on gone beyond, and undefended settlements can be exploited with impunity. Until now, the Langsurix Hilton Shires has forged a coalition to bring the worst of the gone beyond criminals, slavers, to justice. The criminal cartels that have profited from the freedom of gone beyond for so long aren't having any of it, though, and they know the key to taking down Shires is to get rid of renegade fleet inquisitor Andre Kosciusko. But where can they find an assassin with a moxie to disappear Andre Kosciusko? Many have tried. None have succeeded. E-Arcs of Crimes Against Humanity by Susan R. Matthews, Arcad's World by James L. Cambius, and The Storm by David Drake are now available exclusively at Bain eBooks. Check them out. This is the second part of an interview with David Weber talking about uncompromising honor. Part three will be available next time on the podcast, and part one is available last time on the podcast. I want to welcome David Weber to the podcast. Hello, David, once again. Hello, Tony. Other Tony. It's great to have you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's the main way. Well, at least you're probably the David. We have about 15 Davids here now. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Weber is the creator of the Honor Harrington series, among others. He's had two, he's had, I don't know, I think 28, 29 New York Times bestsellers and 8 million books in print. In fact, Uncompromising Honor has uh, cracked the top 10 as of yesterday of the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know if you heard about that, David. I'm sure you did, probably. I did, Marla told me, and the current number is 25 Bain titles that have cracked the list, and 32 total, accounting seven from Tor in the Safe Hold series. Um, but this is only the third one to crack the top 10, though. Uh, the other two were uh, War of Honor and uh, A Rising Thunder. Well, maybe we'll uh, we'll we'll see why that is um, in a moment, uh, because this is a this is a big culminating book in the series. Not the end of the series, but it's a it's a hell of a big book in the series. Um, that book being uh, uncompromising honor, and the book is getting glowing reviews as well as in the usual places. The book is getting glowing reviews in the usual places, but. There's a more unusual recent review. I thought I'd read a little excerpt of it because I thought it was really cool by Mark Vandroff of the Center for International Maritime Security. Actually, um, on actually, their actually, actually, Mark is not uh, with the Center for International Maritime Security. He is uh, in uh, surface warship design in the U.S. Navy, and he is uh, a contributor to the Center for International Maritime Security. Uh, is that... That's not uh, Benign Mark, right? No. No, 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 no. That no, is Mark no. Gudis, uh, who is right. who is a Who's wonderful lawyer. guy, but he's a lawyer, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so Mark uh, Vandroff says, Weber's books are enjoyable as fiction and profound as works of art. In them, great power competition makes its way into the space age on a galactic scale. Battles are described in vivid, suspenseful detail. Both sides grapple to do their duty as they understand it, and it is the human touches that make this book so gripping. Weber's fans will greatly enjoy Uncompromising Honor and be left eagerly awaiting the next installment of this magnificent series. 
which I thought it, it it's really just a, a huge great review in general. That was my favorite little uh, pull pull out of it, which we've uh, we've put on the uh, Amazon page, by the way. I I was very very flattered by by Mark's uh, comments. Um, especially given what he actually does for a living, if you know what I'm saying. And Emily realizes that these two are still never going to say a word to each other about it, but she decides that what happens is she needs to become Honor's friend openly, go back into politics, and be the, you know... I know honor. I know my husband. Absolutely nothing is going wrong. Cover. But she also realizes that Hamish and honor are desperately unhappy, trying to keep from hurting her. And so she eventually says to them, okay, look, maybe it hasn't occurred to you that sometimes the person you're trying to protect doesn't need to be protected. So you guys do whatever you want. I'm going to bed. And in effect, she has said, quit killing yourselves trying not to hurt me, which they do. And then Honor inadvertently becomes pregnant. Uh, her there's, there's actually a reason that she could do that without being careless. Uh, there's this little matter of how long her contraceptive impalement is good for, and the Navy got the records wrong for a reason that makes perfect good sense. She thought she was still protected when, in fact, she was not. She becomes pregnant, and this is a huge problem for her in Grayson because of the succession issues involved with an illegitimate child, et cetera, et cetera. And, again, they don't yeah, have a solution for the problem. Yes, she is basically she's basically a queen on Grayson. If you think of Grayson as a planetary empire, the protector is the emperor, and she is the absolute monarch of Harrington Steading, which is one of only 75, I think, on the entire planet. So that's how big these Steadings are, and it belongs to her, pretty much. But the succession can be really, really messed up if she has this illegitimate child and won't identify the father, which she won't do because of the damage that it would do to Emily, and also because they've been so saying there is no affair, there is no affair, because there wasn't when they were saying it, and now it's like brings everything that they said before into, into question. Uh, and the solution, which is provided by the Reverend, who is basically the Pope of Grayson, where polygamy is the rule because there is a genetic problem which causes female live female births to outnumber live male births by just over three to one. Um, his solution is very simple. Honor marries both Hamish and Emily, and then their child is legitimate, no harm, no foul, which is how she comes to be married to both Hamish and Emily. And I would also add that she loves both of them dearly. Um, she loves Emily oh, a bunch bunches and bunches. And Emily loves her too. Uh, they have sort of um, more of a 
Grayson-style marriage in which um, uh, all parents um, uh, are are um, all, okay. All the kids have however many mothers there are in the in the in the marriage. Um, the um, um, I think the the Manticore is not a strictly uh, 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 it ha- it has multiple marriage arrangements of its own. So it's not like this is so outre that it was you know just beyond the pale or anything like that. The thing is that Hamish and Emily had married in a monogamous ceremony and had planned to remain monogamous. Um, and so it never occurred to honor to to change that, if you see what I'm saying, until Hamish and Emily proposed to her, at which point it's like, yes, 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 kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And this this sort of, it's a love triangle that is a like a happy balance um, is uh, it, it's something that uh, plays a big part in the uh, in the plot of uncompromising honor as we go along. Um, Hamish is an admiral as well as honor, so he's got yeah. his things to actually, do during the coming conflict. Yeah, yeah actually, Hamish is um, he's actually in a civilian role right now, although he is still an admiral. He is the um, the uh, uh, civilian uh, Lord of Admiralty. There are they're organized kind of on the British system, where you have uh, civilian lords and sea lords. Uh, only in this case, they're space lords, and the the space lords are the guys who are on duty with the fleet, or who are commanding fleets, who are commanding bureaus within the the, the uniform side of the navy. And then you have the, the, the guy who is the Lord of Admiralty, who is basically the Secretary of Defense. And there are also uh, civilian lords, although we very seldom see them in, in the book, uh, who are involved in helping to manage the, uh, the civil side of the various bureaus and whatnot. There aren't as many of them as there are of the space lords. But Hamish is actually on half pay which means inactive duty, so that he can take this this civilian position. His brother is the prime minister of Manticore, so and they have they've both known Elizabeth since they were children. So there's well, since she was a child, they were they're like uh, Hamish is twice her age, um, but the um, Hamish's duties are more more political and more administrative now than honors are. Honor is the commander of uh, Grand Fleet, which is the combined Manticore, Grace, and Havenite fleet, which is basically stationed at Manticore right now because with the junction that is puts it in its most strategically advantageous position and also protects Manticore, which is the main prize of the Solarian League because of the junction. Well, what uh, perhaps go back a little bit to the uh, to the bigger picture. Um, what are the technological advantage that Manticore has? There, they've got the wormhole there. 
um, which is a great thing. But but these these Roger these projects that Roger has initiated have come to fruition. Yeah. Um, okay. The main thing is let's see. All right. Prior to Roger's research, um, decisive fleet combat was very rare uh, because it could only be fought out at close range with energy weapons. Missiles were useful, but they were practically never decisive against capital ships because the targets were so difficult and point defense was so good. So capital ships had these massive batteries of energy weapons, and the nature of the reactionless drive in the universe, uh, the impeller drive, uh, they call it the impeller wedge, and it forms a plane of impenetrable gravitic energy both above and below the ship. You can think of the ship as being in a pocket of normal space between these two inclined planes. The inclined planes could theoretically be accelerated instantaneously to light speed, but they are physically coupled to the to the ship. I mean, not with big girders and everything, but with the 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 the, the, the tractors and the pressors that are creating the wedge. So they drag the ship ahead at whatever uh, velocity the the wedge is going, but the ship is experiencing acceleration. And that means you can't accelerate instantaneously to light speed because if you do, you turn the crew into anchovy paste. So they have a technology called the inertial compensator, which allows them to handle accelerations of maybe 300, 400 gravities for uh, a capital ship, uh, 500 for a destroyer. Missiles accelerate at like uh, 140,000 gravities, uh, etc. Um, this is kind of the the basic for propulsion basis for propulsion in the universe. Well, what Roger did is Roger recognized that without some kind of technological equalizer, Manticore was going to lose against Haven simply because of the numbers. Um, and so he uh, created basically a blue sky uh, R&D program. Because of the wormhole junction, Manticore was uniquely well situated to keep up with what was going on everywhere else in the galaxy in terms of applied research. And then they cranked all that into their program. And uh, they came up with uh, some of what some of the advantages that Manticore has are serendipitous. For example, Manticore ships have a higher acceleration rate than any other ships out there because of their Grayson allies. Grayson couldn't get anybody to tell them how to make a compensator, so they made one that wasn't as good as what Manticore had in practice because their technology, the hardware they built it with was cruder. But when Manticore took a look at it, they saw that theoretically it was much more elegant and with Manticore and technology involved, they soon tweaked it to give them a substantial acceleration advantage over everybody else. But that was also, in a way, part of, of Roger's program because Roger had them looking for this kind of stuff instead of settling for the established paradigm. More in directly from Roger's work, or what he set into motion, 
is the faster-than-light communications technology that Manticore has worked out. They have a they can they can communicate over short distances at approximately 64 times the speed of light, which means that they can coordinate things tactically over much greater distances. They can have better uh, fire control, et cetera. The other thing that he worked on was the development of, of superior missiles. Um, and Manticore introduced uh, the missile pod uh, as a way to thicken salvo densities uh, to be able for one ship, instead of being able to launch maybe 40 missiles from a broadside, to be able to launch maybe 200 missiles from pods that are released from a hollow central core in the ship to fall behind the, the mothership. And they were able to finally put the equivalent of multiple stages into a missile. They're called multi-drive missiles or MDMs in the book. And that means that they can accelerate fast, they can accelerate longer, they can reach higher terminal velocities, but most importantly of all, they are still able to maneuver when they close on their targets at hugely expanded ranges instead of being ballistic and unable to acquire a firing angle. So what all this means is that a, a Navy that does not have multi-drive missiles of its own cannot defeat a fleet that does unless the fleet that does runs out of ammunition. That's basically where it comes down to. Missile combat is now pretty much utterly decisive. That's the new paradigm. And all of the Solarian ships were built to the old paradigm where missiles were secondary. You had light missile armaments and heavy energy armaments. So all of a sudden, every single super dreadnought in the Solarian League Navy is obsolete. It's a death trap. And it takes them a little while to figure that out. Yeah, and um, Manticore helps them along in figuring that out in the book. Manticore kind of demonstrates. So the Manticore, okay, the, when, when Admiral Filaretta's fleet arrived at Manticore, Honor had, and, and Thomas Eisman, and, uh, who is the, um, the Havenite Secretary of Defense, and who, by the way, we meet for the first time in the second book in the series, Honor of the Queen. Um, although I hope that nobody reading that book for the first time had a clue that he was going to wind up where he wound up. Um, but they have actually devised a plan where any sane admiral will surrender without firing. And in fact, that's precisely what Filaretta decides to do. But one of those uh, folks under Mason control is on his flagship, and they have recently developed another generation of nanotech, which can literally carry out simple pre-programmed actions, whether it's what the person in question wants to do or not. And they've gotten to Filaretta's operations officer, the guy who is in control of the actual firing codes and whatnot. And Filaretta orders him to stand down. He says, oh, thank God. And he reaches out to throw the button that will deactivate all the missiles that are programmed to launch and so forth and watches his own hand at the firing button instead, which is why 
Manticore, why the Grand, why the Grand Alliance has trashed the Loretta's fleet. It fired like a hundred thousand missiles at the at the Grand Alliance in one salvo. So the Grand Alliance fired back, and the result was a massacre. Yeah. Now, the Solarian League is um, that may have been a been a a, a blip in the uh, in in the general run of things, but they do some nasty things just on their own without any Mason help. Um, especially in this book, there's um, and there are these things you've put in place called the Eridaniatics and the Deneb Accords, which they're 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 kind of using as tactical devices in this scenario, right? Okay, yeah. Let me let me go back to how the Solarian League was set up for a minute. The elect there are elective officials in this in the Solarian League. There's a prime minister, and he has a cabinet, and he has like a minister of industry and a minister of this and a minister of that. But the political leadership really has virtually no control. The control is really vested in the permanent senior undersecretaries who are bureaucrats who are going to be there no matter who's prime minister or whatever. And there are four or five of them, a half dozen. Um, and the Solarian Newsies, the, the news media, has taken to calling them the Mandarins because they are the folks behind the scenes who are managing the bureaucratic empire. They are the ones who are most directly threatened if the protectorates collapse. I mean, the entire federal government is threatened. And, and you have to understand that, at least to some extent, the Mandarins, despite their fact that they are personally corrupt, they're feathering their own net, etc., they have a legitimate concern about what happens if the federal government collapses fiscally because of what Manticore is doing. Now, the solution that they should adopt is to say, you know what, we were wrong, we're going to call the fleet home, we're going to make peace, etc., and then go back to as close to the uh, status quo, quo antebellum as, 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 they, as they can, okay? Um, the problem is that they allowed themselves to be convinced that they could swat Manticore like a gnat early on, and now they're committed. They can't survive personally in power if they back down now. Um, and they keep hoping that they can, if they, they just need to hang on long enough for their technology to duplicate what the Mantis and the, and the Havenites are doing to them. That's what they're telling themselves. And as I said earlier, their technology really is probably as good as anything that the Grand Alliance has. It's just that they haven't developed it in the same applications. So if they can figure out what the Mantis are doing to them, they should be able to duplicate it a whole lot faster than the Mantis figured it out from scratch, if you, if you see what I'm saying. Sure, much the way the Soviet Union uh, copied the bomb, etc. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They don't have to or have exactly the same stuff. What they have to have is stuff that's close enough to equal that if they have 1,800 star systems producing it, and there's only 250 star systems on the other side. The 1,800 star systems can bury the the the, the 200. 
You see, uh, okay, it's kind of like, kind of yes, like, yeah. okay, yeah. fine. You have, you've got 50 Tiger tanks and we have 400 Sherman tanks. Okay, it's going to really suck for the individual Sherman tanks who get in front of the Tigers, but ultimately we will take you down. That's kind of the way that they're, that they're thinking. And partly that's because they don't realize how far behind they are. Um, that only slowly mm-hmm. starts to really become obvious because nobody gets home to tell them what happened to the fleets that run into the Mantis. It's not like they have a bunch of combat reports saying, well, this is what happened, that's what happened. What they get is a, okay, all your guys are prisoners of war. You know, We'll probably give them back after the war. Would you guys please sit down and talk to us now? And so they can convince themselves that, okay, the Manticorans managed to take a whole bunch of missile defense pods and bring them into play or blah, 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 blah. They can find excuses, especially when naval intelligence such as it is and what there is of it, hasn't told them about the change in, in uh, the Grand Alliance's warfighting technology. So you've got this unelected political leadership that can't be un- unelected. It can't be thrown out. It, it's, it's grandfathered in, and it's really what's calling the shots. And as it, as the situation becomes more desperate, as individual star systems within the Solarian League start getting ready to secede from the Solarian League in disagreement with its policies, which is a right the Constitution gives them, but the federal government is trying to deny, they embrace more and more desperate expedients. The one problem that the, the Mandarins and the Solarian League in general has is that as I said earlier, Manticore virtually provided the Solarian Merchant Marine. So when Manticore calls its merchant ships home and starts seizing warp points, uh, wormholes, and closing them down, it totally cripples the the Solarian League's uh, interstellar traffic, which, by the way, also means that the fees being paid by that traffic to support the federal government have gone away. So the federal government is very quickly spending towards bankruptcy and is prohibited by the Constitution from imposing direct taxes. There's not another revenue stream it can get its hands on. Um, all of this is, is, is going on, and at the same time, a lot of star systems are continuing to trade with Manticore. So shutting down its merchant marine should have destroyed the Manticoran economy just as much as it has the Solarian economy. And it does do significant damage to the Manticoran economy, but they are able to make up a lot of the damage by these independent nations, which cannot trade with the Solarian League now because there's no Solarian merchant marine and therefore continue to trade with Manticore. And the Solarian League, the Mandarins, decide that what they need to do is to come up with something that will convince these other star nations and these even these members' systems within the Solarian League that they really don't want to get too close to the Mantis. And what they come up with is Operation Buccaneer. And Operation Buccaneer basically says, okay, we can't fight a Grand Alliance fleet and win. So what we're going to do is we're going to carry out commerce warfare by going after star systems that are trading with Manticore and destroying their their spaceborne industry, which means 
in this technology, almost all industry in the star system, because they put it up in space where it can't pollute the planets. And so basically, they are doing to independent sovereign nations what Sherman did to Georgia on his march to the sea. They're destroying everything in sight. And they're doing it because they can attack these guys who don't have manticoran technology. Um, and essentially, it's a terror campaign. Um, now, the uh, you, talk, you, you mentioned the Eridani Edict and the Deneb Accords. Okay, the Eridani Edict is actually a clause in the uh, Salarian League Constitution, which makes it a constitutionally mandated responsibility of the Salarian League Navy to destroy anybody who violates the Eridani Edict, which is a ban on the use of weapons of mass destruction on civilian populations uh, and the use of, of um, what I suppose we would call terror attacks using weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you can only go after military targets and you are required do your best to minimize civilian casualties. The flip side of that is that a planet is expected under interstellar law to surrender when an opposing fleet controls the orbital space around it, because at that point they can just drop rocks on you all day long. You can't really do too much to them. So the, the, the onus is then on you to surrender to avoid bloodshed, and if you don't, then the orbiting fleet can drop rocks on military targets until you do surrender without violating the Eridani Edict. Well, this means that in theory, the Salarian League was responsible to find whoever carried out the Iwata strike and crush them. And instead, it tried to capitalize on Manticore's weakness after the Iwata strike. So this is a fundamental violation of the League Constitution right there. Now, the Deneb Accords are more like the um, professional code of conduct uh, for the militaries. Uh, they prohibit, for example, firing on a ship which has no wedge. Uh, they require you to accept the surrender of any ship that strikes its wedge. Sometimes, okay, gravitic signatures are faster than, than light. That is why uh, Manticore is able to eventually parlay that fact into this uh, FTL communication ability that it has. So the universal galactic signal of surrender is to drop your wedge because people can see that fast enough to terminate missiles that are still heading for you, that kind of thing. It's kind of like striking your flag during the days of sailing warfare here on Earth. And the Deneb Accords require you to respect that dropped wedge as long as the people who have surrendered aren't still shooting at you or whatever themselves. The Deneb Accords require you to not fire on life pods to give crippled ships time to evacuate without continuing to engage them. And there are other stipulations involved. They're, they're two separate entities, both of which have the force of interstellar law but only the Eridani Edict is part of the Salarian Constitution, if you see what I'm saying. So, in theory, 
in order to carry out an Eridani violation by a Salarian officer is illegal because of the Constitution. And subordinate officers are, in theory, required to refuse those orders because they are unconstitutional and illegal, as well as probably going to lead to megadeaths if they're not resisted. Yeah. Operation Buccaneer is basically the Solarian saying, <laughs> saying we're going to come in and blow a few systems out of uh, that want to go, go over and, and make an example, right? Uh, yes, basically, basically, Operation Buccaneer is one huge Eridani edict violation waiting to happen. In theory, in theory, okay, if you're going to take out the infrastructure in a star system, under the Eridani edict and the Deneb Accords both, you're required to give people time to evacuate. Now, there are exceptions to that. If the industry you're going to take out has direct military applications, for example, if it's the shipyard building the other guy's navy, or it's the automated fabricating plant where the 3D printers are turning out the missiles, or you know that kind of thing, and you can get in, these are critical strategic military targets, and you can get in, but you don't have time to let them evacuate before a bigger defending fleet gets to you or something. In those cases, you can take out the infrastructure without allowing civilian evacuation. But unless those circumstances apply, you are legally and morally required to give the civilians and even the military personnel aboard those, those, those platforms time to evacuate to a planetary surface. If you don't, it's a violation of the Deneb Accords at the very least. And depending on what else you're attacking, for example, let's say you're taking out civilian uh, industry that has no military application or civilian habitats as part of a, an attack like Buccaneer, which is designed to have the psychological impact of forcing this star system to side with you are not manticore, or to be a horrible example to other star systems of, we'll come and do this to you too if you trade with manticore. Then you're getting into an Eridani edict violation as well if they don't provide a window for everybody aboard the platforms to evacuate. And that is precisely Operation, Bucca Operation Buccaneer includes something called Parthian Shot. And essentially, yeah, what Parthian shot? That. Yeah, well, Parthian shot is named. Okay, the Parthians were were uh, uh, light cavalry uh, during the, the the time of the the Roman Empire, and they had a tactic which other light cavalry uh, forces, like the Mongols, have also used, which is while riding away from the enemy. You turn in the saddle and use your horse bow to shoot arrows at them. You're holding the range open by staying uh, by by using your horse's speed to stay out of their reach while while pelting them with arrows as as you run. Well, basically, Parthian shot says to Solarian commanders, if we send you to Star System X to take out its its infrastructure, 
and you realize that there's a manticoran force in there that will clean your clock if you stay and try and obey the Eridani edict and everything else, you are authorized to fire however many missiles it takes to do the job while you run away and escape into hyper and don't worry about the casualties. We're fine with that. That's basically what Parthian shot is. And it's part of the Operation Buccaneer mission orders. Now, uh, Admiral Kingsford, the guy who is who has become the new chief of naval operations after the old chief of naval operations who was working with Mesa suffered an accident. Uh, Kingsford doesn't like this plan at all, and he argues against it. He's overruled by the mandarins, and he really kind of hopes that his, his, his task force commanders will have the moral courage to not use Parthian shot. And he's, he's really hard on himself later on when, because he realizes that, you know, he kind of, that, that he basically waffled on this issue. But the problem is, if he said, no, I won't do it, they just fire him and find someone who would. And at least as long as he's where he is, he can argue in the name of sanity against what their next lunacy that they come along with. And he sort of made a, uh, a deal with the devil uh, to, to try and moderate their excesses as much as possible, which makes him complicit in some of the excesses they're already already committed to. Yeah. Well, this is what you do with your bad, your bad guys, quote-unquote, a lot of times, and especially the uh, Salarian Navy guys. There are some who he's right about who are not going to violate these edicts, and they are, they are in moral turmoil right in the midst of battle. Um, and there's some great scenes inside the, the starships as they have to make these decisions. Um, but well, Cap, Caprietti, for example, Oliver Caprietti, you know, he, he actually carries out the first of the, of the uh, Buccaneer operations because he's closest to his objective. And he's very careful to minimize uh, casualties and so forth. And he has no intention whatsoever of using Parthian shot if it turns out that the, that the objective is covered. And then you have some folks like Admiral Hodgdu. Uh, and Admiral Hodgdu is actually sent to a star system, which is part of the Salarian League, but which has voted to secede. And so he is there to carry out Operation Buccaneer. Yeah, that's Hypatia. He's there to carry out uh, Buccaneer against Hypatia, and he figures that the Manticorans are on their way. So he's willing to kill two, three million Hypatian citizens to take out the infrastructures before he has to run away to get away from the Manticorans. Now, what he doesn't know is that there is already a light manticorn, very light manticorn squadron in the system. Um, and when it becomes obvious that he really is going to take out these civilian habitats with millions of people aboard them before they've had time to evacuate, the manticorns attack him in one of the major battles of the book. And I would prefer not to tell you how it comes out, Except to say that Hodge does come to a very bad end before this is over. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, some of, rather than tell us how it comes out, go tell us about going in some of the RMN. Uh, we've talked about the Solarians a lot. Uh, 
Who are some of our good guys in, in say, Hypatia? There's um, Katush, uh, or however you... Admiral, Admiral Kudik. Um, that's how I pronounce it, and Megan. naturally speaking. And and uh, Megan Peterson, <laughs> and um, Jason, her, her, her boyfriend, and uh, all three of those people, and there are some others uh, in here, happen to be uh, friends or fans who have been tuckerized, uh, red-shirted um, in the in in the uh, in the novel. Um, the characters have to make a a moral decision. Uh, they have to decide whether they're going to abide by the tradition of Saganami or not. And the tradition of Saganami is named after Edward Saganami, who is the spiritual father of the Royal Manticoran Navy, and who took on an overwhelming force with a single battle cruiser in order to protect uh, a convoy of freighters uh, under his command. And he and everybody aboard his ship, the battle cruiser Nike, uh, lost their lives, but they successfully protected the merchantmen they were responsible for protecting. And every graduating class at the academy watches that final battle uh, from the, the sensor recordings from one of the freighters who was fleeing and sees Edward Saganami's final message to his queen just before the ship blows up. It's called the final view. And this is their, 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 their window into the reality of what they can be called upon to do. And at the end of the final view, the senior officer present who is um, officiating at the final view, if you want, to, ends with the, the, the phrase, the tradition lives. And this is a signature moment for every Manticoran officer. Now, not all of them are going to live up to the tradition, but that's the pattern. And so these folks in Hypatia have to have to decide if they're going to live up to the Saganami tradition, knowing that they will probably almost inevitably all be killed, and they probably won't be able to inflict enough damage to preclude Hajdu or whoever succeeds him in command from carrying out the operation. It's a question of what their their moral responsibility to their monarch, to the people of Hypatia, and to themselves demands of them. Um, and they obviously, because there's a battle, make the decision to attack anyway. And they're pretty much right about what's going to happen to them. Yeah. It's a real... Um you know, 300 moment, if you will, um, uh, Thermopylae kind of, uh, kind of, uh, we're going to do this in a Navy. Set. Yeah. It, 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 in a Naval setting, it, it's, it's kind of like, um, okay. In more recent Naval experience, it would be kind of like, uh, the, uh, the escorts, uh, the destroyers escorting the light carriers at the Battle of uh, Battle of Leyte Gulf, when the light carriers were surprised by uh, a concentrated force of Japanese battleships and heavy cruisers, um, the 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 light destroyers and destroyer escorts of the carriers attacked into the teeth 
of this massive Japanese uh, naval force to buy time for the carriers to run uh, and and maybe be able to get some planes into the air that might be able to defend them. Every Every person on those destroyers expected to be sunk, but they attacked anyway. And most of them did get sunk, but they bought the time that the aircraft carriers needed to escape. And that's really kind of the decision that, that Admiral Kudik and his people have to make at Hypatia. Um, and like the destroyers at, at Leyte Gulf, all he thought he could do was to buy Hypatia a little more time. He didn't think he could stop what was going to happen. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful moment in the story, and it's uh, it culminates because we've we've had um, such a great setup beforehand. Um, another uh, character that we see in the book that we've we've seen for a while in the Crown of Slaves <laughs> uh, sub series, uh, and and Honor comes up with a with a final solution for him. Well, not a final solution in that sense, but. Uh, but a fix, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably, when they were reading Shadow of Victory, wondered why I was spending so much, Shadow of Freedom, wondered why I was spending so much time with Damien. And there were a couple of reasons. One is that I wanted to show you more of the protectorates, um, more of what was going on out there. And this was my window into doing that. Uh, part of it was because um, I needed... Um, there was there was setup that I needed to make clear uh, from earlier earlier uh, earlier books that had touched on it but not really set the stage for it if you if you know what I'm saying um, and it was also because I had plans for Damien which come to fruition mostly uh, in this book I thought it was a really super cool twist by the way David that was I, I didn't expect it yes okay. For those of for those readers who don't know what tree cats are, tree cats are native uh, to the planet Sphinx, which is the planet in the Manticore binary system where Honor was born. Tree cats are actually the native intelligent species of Sphinx, although they were very careful to hide their intelligence from humans for a long time because they're only about two and a half feet long, and they're fuzzy and adorable, but they don't use tools much more complicated than Neolithic stone stuff, you know, whatnot. And here are these big, two-legged, clumsy people who are digging holes in the ground, building things, you know. And so they basically decided what they would do is they would keep an eye on the humans and hide the fact that they were truly intelligent. Some of them, however, form uh, bonds with humans, very few, uh, uh, something about the human involved, the tree cat involved, creates a, a, a bond between them, which is so intense that when the human dies, the tree cat normally suicides. Um, and before prolong, what this meant was that to adopt a human being, a tree cat who could expect to live probably a couple hundred years as his native lifespan, was sacrificing half his lifetime to this bond with the human and they still thought it was worth it because of the the depth of the empathic bond and the strength of humans. Tree cats are telepathic among themselves. They are also tele telempathic. They share, project emotions. 
and human emotions are very, very, very strong, probably because we can't project them. So they're kind of trapped inside us. And also, we don't have a volume control on them. Um, but this this results in these, these lifetime bonds between the tree cats and the humans. And tree cats normally will only adopt someone who would respect the bond, respect their mutual obligations and, and their love for each other. Honor has been adopted by Nimitz, uh, whose tree cat name is uh, Laughs Brightly because he is a practical joker with a very low sense of humor. Um, and she's called, she named him Nimitz because they're unable to communicate. He can't form human words. She can't receive thoughts. But over the years, she has sort of developed her own version of the tree cat's empathic sense, which is why she knows how Hamish really feels about her while he's carefully not telling her. Um, she can taste thoughts, she says. She she can taste she can taste emotions. She she can she can feel what you're feeling. Um and this is a good thing and a bad thing. It means, for example, that it's impossible to lie to her in person because she can feel the emotions behind the lie, uh, which makes her a very interesting uh interrogator. Which is how she actually meets Damien Harahop for the first time, because Damien Harahop was working directly for the Mason alignment. He knows all kinds of stuff about the Mason alignment and would be the best window into the Mason alignment they could have if he's telling them the truth. They also can't quite figure out why he hasn't dropped dead because by this time they figured out about the nanotech that the Masons use as a security tool. And therefore, the fact that he hasn't died causes some of them to believe that he has to be some kind of a plant. Um, and it is Honor's conversation with him, which basically leads her to the conclusion that, you know, basically he was working for the Mason alignment because everybody else was trying to kill him. And they were the only people who weren't. And because this is what he's good at. This are, these are the tools that he has. There was nothing personal in it. He was a professional doing what he had to do to stay alive. And if he would agree to work for us, he would work for us just as hard as he ever worked for anybody else. The problem is, if he says, yeah, I will, is how do you make sure he means it? And Honor's solution is to assign him his own tree cat bodyguard. Now, the reason this works is that the tree cats have decided after the Iwata strike killed an entire clan of tree cats. And these are, these are, these are impasse. They felt this entire clan die. They felt the terror. They felt the pain. They felt everything. And in the wake of that, they decided, you know what? It's time we stopped trying to pretend that we're children, that we're not fully intelligent because we can detect there's there's a, some of this nanotech can be used to compel people to assassinate their closest friends. The tree cats can detect the moment that the nanotech takes over, and so or any other threat in the area. So basically, the tree cats have come forward and said we are going to be bodyguards for the most important two legs, which is their term for humans, who are likely to be attacked by our common enemies. 
And so Queen Elizabeth already had a tree cat. She's bonded like honor is. But uh, Patricia Givens, who is the uh, second space lord and the head of the Office of Naval Intelligence, is given has a tree cat friend now, a, a bodyguard. And they have learned to communicate using sign language, which is a huge, 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 huge uh, intellectual step, for, conceptual step for the for the tree cats, because the tree cats not only have no written language, they have no spoken language. And in this book, you finally see that there have been, I think, examples of this earlier, but in this book, I think you most clearly see the difference between the way that tree cats communicate with one another and the way that humans communicate with one another and what that means for how they communicate with between the species. But, so yes, Harahop gets his very own tree cat bodyguard, a tree cat whose sister was uh, married into the clan that was destroyed and who wants nothing better than to get close enough to one of the people who did it than to rip out his throat. And believe me, tree cats are very well equipped to do that. Um, and so they figure he's going to make the perfect bodyguard because the instant that Harahop even thinks about betraying anybody, this this person who can sense his emotions is going to sink two or three paws full of claws into his shoulder and say, I think you should rethink this kind of thing. That's the theory. It doesn't quite work out that way. Um, and for those of you who yeah. haven't read the book yet, I really don't want to tell you how it does work out. But I will say that Hamish Alexander basically calls Honor Harrington up and says, you thought this was a good idea when he finds out what happened. <laughs> that was part two of an interview with David Weber talking about uncompromising honor. Check out last week for part one of the interview. And next time on the podcast, part two. Three will be available. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 10 Among the warrior caste, Jagdish was of low rank, young age, and minor status. 
His position on the personal guard of Great House Fidal had been earned due to his exemplary courage in battle, and the fact that his disregard for tradition and disrespect for stupid commanders had gotten him thrown out of his last unit. Jagdish thought of himself as a brilliant strategist who'd found himself working for careless fools, so he'd been happy to take the promotion. If he'd known, the personal guard mostly stood around looking pretty while the first cast threw lavish parties, he'd have avoided the promotion and stayed patrolling the border. Continual skirmishing against other houses was always exciting. Watching the firsters drink themselves into a stupor was boring. Listening to high-ranking warriors, who were only of such status because their fathers had been great men, brag about their imaginary accomplishments was offensive. Rich workers pranced about in their silks and gold ornaments, as if their wealth made them equal to the first and second castes. These vapid, useless people annoyed him to no end. I wish they'd called off this affair, Jagdish whispered to Durang. The other warrior kept his expression neutral. They'd been ordered not to display any emotion. It made a better show for the honored guests. A little rain is no reason to cancel a party, Jagdish. He'd been thinking of the recently arrived news about the border raid by House Sarnabad. Fifty men captured and a town pillaged demanded an immediate, exceedingly violent response, preferably with an entire legion of troops to put those uppity Sarnabad bastards in their place. Of course, Bidea Vidal had spent more on decorations for this ball than she had equipping that particular garrison, so Jagdish doubted the thought had even crossed her mind. The dress uniform was uncomfortable, and wouldn't so much as slow a sword unless he got lucky and it hit one of the multitude of medals pinned to his chest. And thinking of swords was another annoyance, since he wasn't even allowed to wear his in the main hall. They were limited to knives, because it was a fad in the capital that wearing a sword at a party was an insult to the safety provided by the hosts. So the great houses had, as usual, copied capital fashions. That ridiculous custom had been carried to the illogical end of even limiting the men who were supposedly providing the host safety. If this was a proper warrior celebration, you wouldn't be able to walk ten feet without tripping over a real weapon. Jagdish longed to take off the frilly uniform, throw it in a fire, and then return to the other warriors to take a sword in hand to smite his enemies for glory, as he'd been born to do. Durang tried to hide a yawn and failed. Luckily, none of their superiors noticed. The main hall of the palace was a huge room, and it was filled with people. Vidal was the lushest, richest house so no expense had been spared to demonstrate that fact. The ceiling and walls had been decorated with so many flowers that it made Jagdish's nose itch. Musicians played, women sang, the multitude were dancing in their colorful outfits, the young and beautiful trying to impress each other. And though he doubted any of those high-status young warriors knew a damned thing about fighting, Jagdish had to admit that they were all very good dancers. So that's what the privileged practiced while the rest of us learned to swing a sword. 
This was the sort of event where suitable mates were found and marriages arranged between the highest of each caste. Jagdish didn't care. He was of no importance, so he'd be assigned a wife eventually. Hopefully, she wouldn't be too ugly. Between each song, more arrivals were announced. They must have picked the House Herald based on whoever was the loudest person in the city. The man had a voice that could be heard over a battlefield, and as guests arrived, he would bellow out their names, officers, and starters so that the entire hall could hear. The celebration had drawn guests of the highest starters, and they'd even been joined by representatives of several other houses. Those ambassadors were probably the reason Bedea had put out enough food to feed a village for a year. Vidal never tired of rubbing their wealth in other houses' faces. Durang looked like he might yawn again, so Jagdish stepped on his foot to warn him. The elderly leader of House Vidal had finally made her appearance, and she'd had guards flogged for smaller offenses. The tune ended. The dancers came to a stop. The core of Great House Vidal, widow of bearer Badramunda, mother of Chief Judge Harta, and lady of this house, shouted the herald with the loudest voice in all of Locke. Bidea Vidal has graced us with her presence. Bidea was standing on the balcony. She appeared haughty as ever, dressed in the richest silks of Harbin, jewels from Casa One, and feathers from colorful Gujaran jungle birds. The giant warrior, Sankamur, a beast of a man and Bidea's personal champion, stood behind her. She didn't have a voice like the Herald, but when you were that important, everyone made sure to listen closely. Welcome to my hall. Medea possessed a patient and patronizing smile. Dance, drink, and feast. Enjoy the hospitality of Great House Vidal, for this season we have been truly blessed for our obedience to the law. Medea was a terrifying old woman, and she'd ruled this place with an iron fist ever since her husband had died over two decades ago, through multiple house wars and the deadliest of politics. The guests obediently lined up to greet her, acting like she was their favorite grandmother. Medea began walking down the stairs, with Sankamore shadowing her and cataloging every potential threat in the room. The giant's eyes lingered on Jagdish for a moment, but Jagdish took no offense, as he was probably the second best fighter in the room, and a good bodyguard truly trusted no one, especially not his fellow warriors. Jagdish was jealous. The wickedly curved blades Sankamore was carrying certainly stretched the capital's polite definition of the word, knife. The musicians began playing again and those too young or too unworthy to greet the Thakur returned to their merriment. Jagdish went back to watching for trouble. At worst, he'd probably have to remove anyone who became too drunk or smoked too much poppy and began molesting the slaves in public. If they were of higher station, which was likely, the most he could do was ask them politely to take it somewhere private. More important people were arriving. Durang seemed too nervous now to yawn. There was some commotion at the entrance of the hall. A few raised voices suddenly silenced.
Jagdish walked to the side so that he could see better. A tall, broad-shouldered man in a rough traveling cloak was showing something to some very chastised-looking guards. The guards bowed deep and then fearfully moved aside. The dark, wet hood was very out of place among the bright, stylish guests. Panicked, one of the house servants ran to the herald and whispered in his ear. The herald looked like he might go into shock. A female singer was in the middle of a verse, and the musicians hadn't even gotten the signal to stop, so the drums were still pounding when the herald made his rushed announcement. After twenty years away, bearer of mighty Angruvadal, protector of the law, Ashok Vidal has returned. It couldn't be. The music came to a crashing stop mid-verse. The dancers froze. There were many audible gasps. Every head turned to see. Ashok was a legendary figure in this house. Very few of them had ever met the man who bore their sword. My ass, that's the bearer. There's no way, Durang whispered. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the fixed perspective point for a drawing of the entire universe, a point found at the beginning of the Renaissance, lost during the Enlightenment, but now recovered in Betsy McConnell's basement in Slidell, Louisiana. How we got there is a tale of converging lines and multiple shadings, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to David Weber, author of Uncompromising Honor. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 